A medical journal has announced that it is retracting a study, a published study on the drug hydrochloroquine. This is the anti-malaria drug that everyone knows about that the president touted as a good treatment for COVID-19. One of those studies is published in The Lancet. They are now retracting that at the request of, as I understand it, the individuals who published the study. What's going on? Why did the individuals and the Lancet lose faith in this study? And what does it mean? Because we're talking about, I think, two retractions, the Lancet and another publication. But there are also other studies on this drug, too. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the HVMN podcast. This is your host, Jeffrey Wu. Hope you're all safe and well. There's a lot of news stories going on in the world today. But I think one of the more interesting and very important news stories was in part sparked by my guest today. His name is Dr. James Todaro. If you've heard anything about hydroxychloroquine, Lancet Gate, this gentleman was part of the center of that storm and excited to have you on the program. Thanks for having me, Jeff. How are you doing? I mean, let's just touch base on the human front for a quick second before diving into the story and the meat here. Are you family well, safe, healthy? Yeah, we're doing very well. Uh, here in Michigan, actually, this, that's where I am is in Michigan. Uh, restaurants are just starting to open up. I was actually crazy, though. I just had a baby about six weeks ago. So it was really during the, the center of, uh, I guess, the, the pandemic. And so we actually, uh, early on, it looked like this was going to get worse and hospital systems were going to be short-staffed and everything. We actually decided to have the baby at home. So uh, there was a midwife present, but I actually delivered the baby here, uh, and uh, she's healthy and everything. But uh, it's kind of a little uh, interesting twist to the pandemic, in addition to all this research that I've been doing. Congratulations. Yeah, it sounds like the MD medical doctor training. Although I don't think her OBGYN seems like it played into good use there. It's been a long time since I delivered a baby uh, since medical school. <laughs> yeah. So for folks who are tuning into the broad story that Dr. Tadaro is involved with, you've probably heard about hydroxychloroquine, how it might have application for COVID-19, and of course, all the political spin with Trump being super for it and that drawing in WHO, CDC, the whole, I would say, drama or the politicization or the institutionalization of what folks are trying to see from the data and the ground up. Perhaps I'll just give context of what has happened in the last week here with the withdrawal of a couple of key studies that have dictated how government and international organizations have treated hydroxychloroquine. Can we give the intro wedge into that story? And we'll start from there. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I've been following COVID-19 since January. It looked like it was going to be a highly infectious virus that was going to be leaving China, coming to Europe and the U.S. And I was doing a lot of research on it. And that's when I kind of, working with a colleague, came up with the proposition of using chloroquine or its closely related derivative, hydroxychloroquine, as a potential treatment for coronavirus. And so we published that paper in uh, mid-March, March 13th. After Elon Musk tweeted it out, it, it was widely disseminated, uh, millions of views. My colleague went on Fox News a couple times to discuss it. And then once the president discussed it in a presser and tweeted it out, it became probably one of the one of the hottest controversies of this pandemic. It uh, it really is probably the medication that divides divides people the most. Um, in addition to a number of the other recommendations made by the, the CDC and World Health Organization, 
obviously, since we released that paper, uh, I've been closely following hydroxychloroquine. I know just about every single study that's come out about it, both the benefits, potential benefits of this therapy, as well as the risks or potential harms. When the Lancet study came out, uh, you know, it was very interesting to me because it, it didn't really line up with the research that I had been seeing about hydroxychloroquine. Hundred percent. And then for folks who don't necessarily follow medical journals, Lancet is essentially the Gucci, the Louis Vuitton of medical journals. All the top policymakers probably are reading this and and really take their policy decision making from research being published and essentially certified by Lancet. So, what exactly was that study, and what clued you in specifically on? the potential fishiness of the raw data there. Yeah, so uh, to kind of amplify your point, yeah, the, the Lancet is a 200-year-old journal. It's either the first or second most prestigious medical journal out there. So basically, if something is published and makes it through the peer review process for the Lancet, physicians and healthcare professionals essentially look at it as, as almost like God's word of medicine. The Lancet study was a supposedly a multinational observational analysis about 96,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients. So massive, massive database. Um, they collected data all the way from December into about mid-April on, on these patients. And what they're specifically looking at was how these patients did when treated with either hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine plus a, a macrolide, which a macrolide, um, the one you're probably most familiar with is azithromycin. So it's an antibiotic, but also can have some anti-inflammatory, antiviral properties as well. Sorry to interject here, and that was the combination that President Trump used prophylactically in recent weeks, correct? So the prophylactic regimen is a little bit different from the treatment regimen, which actually also, I think, affected the most recent New England Journal of Medicine study. They, they came out looking at it as prophylactic. But um, so prophylactic is for, there's two different types of prophylaxis. It's called pre-exposure prophylaxis and post-exposure prophylaxis. And Trump was taking the medication as post-exposure prophylaxis. There was someone that he came in contact with, I think maybe even two people at the White House, who were later discovered to have uh, to be infected with coronavirus. And so he took, I believe, a single dose of azithromycin, as well as zinc and then hydroxychloroquine. So the hydroxychloroquine, he continued throughout a two-week course, um, because by that point, if, if he hadn't been infected with with the coronavirus, then, uh, you know, it's kind of unlikely that he was going to. So the initial dose of azithromycin is probably just to combat, uh, you know, kind of that one early dose to maybe give you a little boost. Uh, but that kind of is a little bit more controversial. It was less research on post-exposure prophylaxis with azithromycin. But I, I'd say the mainstay of his regimen was the hydroxychloroquine. Got it. I just wanted to just tease in with folks that might have seen azithromycin associated with hydroxychloroquine, where they might have heard that or where they might have seen yep. that. So, But that is the original regimen. So that's the regimen that was first uh, studied by uh, in the south of France by Dr. Didier Rayol. And, um, and that's what he showed effectiveness in, in his clinical treatment of patients. And so that's why um, that has been such a um, kind of studied regimen, I would say, over the past couple months. Can I get back to the study? So what they discovered was, was to me, shocking. Not shocking to a lot of the mainstream media who had been saying, remember, all along, essentially since we came out with this paper, that hydroxychloroquine will harm you. It's got a lot of risks, uh, particularly from the cardiac side of things, uh, where it can give you a heart attack, it can cause you to go into arrhythmias. And so when this study came out, it was 
very quickly embraced by a lot of the mainstream media as supporting what they'd been saying for a while. And if you followed the news at all, when, when the president was taking this medication as a prophylaxis, there was a, you know, a lot of negative attention on how dangerous this was and irresponsible this was of him to, to do this. So the study came out and actually showed that there was that you had twice the risk of dying from COVID-19 if you were treated with hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine. So this isn't just saying that there's no benefit to this medication. They were actually saying you are more likely to die, significantly more likely to die if you get treated with this as opposed to not treated with it. And then as a secondary outcome, it showed that you were at a higher risk of developing a, uh, a cardiac arrhythmia. So your heart, uh, your heart rhythm would be basically thrown out of whack um, to the layperson. That was really shocking to me. One thing that I've been saying since March is that hydroxychloroquine very, very likely has no effect, no benefit if used late in treatment of COVID-19. It's by that point, you have such a systemic inflammatory response to this disease. You potentially have cytokine storm, you're, you, you, know, you have a, maybe a raging pneumonia, and it's unlikely that hydroxychloroquine will help you. So the fa- if the study came out showing that the results showed no benefit, I'd be kind of more inclined to believe them, but it came out actually showing that it's, it's harmful. And that, that didn't quite make sense. That didn't make sense to Dr. Raul, Dr. Zelenko, and a lot of other independent researchers uh, like myself um, around the world who were studying the results of the Lancet study. What was very interesting was how quickly this study uh, resulted in uh, changing uh, uh, kind of treatment policies or guidelines all around the world. The World Health Organization reviewed this study for a short weekend. So the study came out May 22nd on a Friday. By May 25th, Monday, the World Health Organization halted all of its clinical trials of hydroxychloroquine in about 17 different countries, I believe, and was discouraging physicians and uh, global leaders from using hydroxychloroquine really at all in treatment uh, or prophylaxis of COVID-19. This is probably the study that had maybe the most real-world impact on how physicians are treating patients with COVID-19. The way the study presented the data is it was... It was very much a large data set, and they, they grouped each uh, kind of uh, you know, population of patients by continent. So not, not by country, but actually by continent. So you had North America, uh, Europe, you had Australia. And so this was, I think, now looking back, a way to try to hide the data as much as possible. But Australia is unique because it's, it's both a country and a continent, and so that was where the first red flag of the data surfaced. And what, what we learned by just very simply matching the total number of COVID-19 deaths in Australia by the end of that, that study uh, data collection period showed that the study was reporting more deaths than there even were in Australia at that time. People had been talking about it uh, on Twitter, and then The Guardian put out a, a report really specifically talking about uh, Australia. And the authors of the study very quickly corrected this and said, oh, well, it was just a kind of, we designated one of the hospitals to the wrong continent. It was supposed to be Asia, but we said it was in Australia. The conclusion does not change. And they published this formally to the Lancet. And, you know, essentially a way to, I think, just dismiss this, um, this inconsistency with the data. At that point, that was a, that was a very large red flag for me. Um, and they were still refusing to release the data set or let uh, independent researchers kind of look at the, the, not quite the raw data, but even to know how many hospitals were, were uh, data was collected from in each country. 
then we started, the, the more we dove into the data, the more it didn't quite make sense. The data they were reporting from Africa was, it was, it was really, you know, data that is supposedly coming from kind of fairly sophisticated hospital systems in Africa. So supposedly these hospital systems were able to give uh, the, the authors of the study, you know, real-time data. So they had to have some type of portal, electronic medical record system to, to communicate that data. And then it would the data they were collecting was, was fairly detailed with it, such that it, it included, uh, you know, continuous cardiac monitoring. And just most hospitals in Africa aren't equipped and don't do this, particularly with COVID-19, which is highly infectious, and you're trying to minimize the staff-patient contact. So that was the, I say, second red flag with the data. And the third red flag, which, you know, I, I did more digging into, was they, uh, you know, they were reporting 63,000 hospitalized COVID-19 patients uh, in North America. The U.S. only had, in total, about 63,000 hospitalized patients uh, from COVID-19 at that time. And then if you want to include uh, Canada and, and Mexico, there was just a, a couple thousand more from them. It was really the bulk of the U.S. And so it, it seemed extremely unlikely, I would say actually impossible, that they were able to capture uh, detailed patient data on almost every single hospitalized COVID-19 patient in North America. I mean, that's that's a database that just doesn't exist, particularly in, in real-time data. You'd want that to happen, potentially, right? That we could track everyone in real-time in our country. That would be an ideal goal. But I think folks who actually understand a little about the health systems, I like we wish we were that efficient. We were, wish we were that organized. You're you're exactly right. I mean, that would be the kind of uh, the holy grail of, of medical research to be able to have that. But realistically, different hospital systems have very different electronic medical records. There's um, you know there's a ton of compliance requirements with this, and it's just it's it hasn't been done yet. And so so the authors when they were asked for the data, they said, oh well, we can't release the data because it uh, is part of uh, data exchange agreements with these you know hundreds of hospitals that we have and that all that information is uh, controlled by Surgisphere. And so that's when I really said, okay, well, you're asking us to trust this data that is actually unbelievably complete. You have in this black box. So fine, if we're supposed to trust the Surgisphere company for coming up with this all the data, let me, let me look into it. And so at the time I looked into it, there really wasn't much investigative research in the Surgisphere. So I have both the background, I'm a, like I said before, so I'm a physician, I, I know how patient databases look, I, I know how, um, you know, medicine works. And then on the other side, I'm also a, a tech investor. So I evaluate startup tech companies all the time. And Surgisphere, their website looked like a startup tech company. It did not look like a, uh, a mature database that was handling, as they said at the time, 240 million patient encounters from 1200 hospitals in 50 or so different countries. It was mostly promotional, and the only real research they had on there was their one other study they published in the New England Journal of Medicine about a month earlier. And they had no team. They had buzzwords of, of very complicated uh, analytics, which included artificial intelligence, machine learning. Machine learning. Right, yep. exactly. All the buzzwords, you know, for a startup tech company. It, yeah, being in Silicon Valley, you hear that, you're like, all right, is this uh, some human, you know, filtering some stuff? Or is this like, yeah, what is exactly. this? Exactly. And so to accomplish any of this would require a massive team. It would require, you know, so senior software engineers, uh, data scientists, physicians, uh, researchers, uh, and, and over years or months to years, it would be very difficult to put this together. 
there was no mention of really a team besides just the founder. The LinkedIn on each of the uh, on the Surgisphere website just went to to the founder, Dr. Sapan Desai. Surgisphere did have a LinkedIn, and so if you go to the LinkedIn for the corporation, it was really just five people, five employees for Surgisphere that were listed. There was the founder. There was two businessmen who just joined the company about two months earlier. One of them looked like he was still working for a different company, so maybe it was like a part-time thing. And then two other, what they were called science editors. So one of the science editors is actually a, a science fiction writer. So if, I don't know if that counts as science or not. But the other science editor actually looks like he, he passed away, I think, last year. He was a, it looked like he was a mentor to Dr. Sapan Desai. But before two to three months earlier, it looked like there really wasn't any team besides this one guy. And then if you look at the subsidiary companies, because then I was like, okay, well, maybe this is Surges for like their head corporation, but their subsidiary companies is where they have this, this big team that's performing all this sophisticated analytics. And so Quartz Clinical is one of the, the subsidiary companies that's most often mentioned. And I'm, I'm sure you've heard, and a lot of people have heard, but there's a YouTube video out there. It looks like one of those professionally done YouTube videos where it has the founder in the booth with his booth in the background talking about how great Surgisphere is. And then on comes a, a young woman who is, you know, this, the screen comes up with Surgisphere director of sales. And she's talking about what they're doing, what they've accomplished at Surgisphere. And it, it actually turns out she's just an adult model for hire. Basically the whole picture for the team was that there's no real team. It's really just this this one guy behind this whole operation. And then things even got fishier. If you were to check the internet archives, you can't find anything about this company. It was actually the, the website was excluded from the internet archives, which is strange. One thing is for the internet archives to not have uh, a website, like they didn't collect data or collect a snapshot of it. But that's not what it says. It was actually somehow intentionally excluded or removed from the uh, the archives. So you really couldn't get much history on Surgisphere and what they were saying they were accomplishing or doing uh, even just three months ago. And then the last thing that was just didn't make sense was how does Dr. Desai have this massive database? And he's a highly published uh, author. He's published about 39 times in the past five years. Why did he never use this massive database? <laughs> like he's published, you know, this, this database should be a treasure trove for... Uh, researchers, uh, physicians, and, and everywhere. And I would, at the bare minimum, have used it myself if I were him. But there was no real study that came out using this database until April. And it was by that point, it was very clear that this was actually not manipulated data, but I would say an entirely fake, fraudulent data. And so that's what I put out in my uh, my expose. I called it, I titled it a study out of thin air. And I published that on May 29th, tweeted it out, and it got a good amount of attention. And then I think The Guardian came out with a similar story uh, about four or five days later. And then, uh, and then it kind of started to hit mainstream media. Incredible. I have a lot of people that send me messages every day that have different tips and things to look into. And so I really have to acknowledge those, those people as well that uh, contribute to, to that article. I, I'm just still digesting the ramifications here where literally WHO... International policymakers are have made decisions on something that was so flimsy that you, on your part time day job slash hobby of being an independent researcher, poking around a little bit at the source data, and it, it is so flimsy that it falls apart. I think I just want to take this in two directions, which is one, let's dive into 
a little bit of the bias or the appetite for editors of Landset to so quickly adopt and disseminate something that was so definitive and also just like a really, very interesting data set. I, th- I think, as you mentioned, if one could really have access to that kind of health records uh, database, that's a powerful research tool. And I'm curious to talk on One Direction, why we think the atmosphere on these tastemakers was geared in that one direction. And then two, I'd love to talk a little bit more about what is science and how institutional science might be bifurcating of what truly is science. And I think if you again look at definitions of what science, there's almost a opposing force from appeal to authority. It's almost a doubt of institutional dogma that drives what is really science, which is looking at raw data, running experiments, testing hypotheses. So, I mean, can we speculate a little bit on the motivations and why this played out the way it did? You can imagine that in a more hopefully normal or proper setup here, there will be more checks and balances at the editor level at Lancet and at the policymaking level at WHO. Why did James Tataro taking tips from Twitter people blow this out? Like why, how, how could you be the watchdog protecting global health public policy? It doesn't make sense, right? We're taking a quick break here for an important announcement. Father's Day is coming up, and we all have father figures or father-like figures in our lives that we should be honoring and celebrating. So this year, HVMN is offering a free Kato, which is our Omega-3 health kit, with every single purchase on HVMN.com. Getting that Omega-3, especially that DHA, which is so important for cognitive performance, we've been really thoughtful around everything that stacks in conjunction with it. So especially in this day and age, with vitamin D being one of the largest deficiencies in our country today and its implications for immune function. We have vitamin D3 stacked with vitamin K1 and K2, which are also hard to find in diet, stacked really nicely here in Kato. And if you start noticing, that's K for K, vitamin K, D for vitamin D, and O for omega-3. The last letter A is actually for astaxanthin, which is a super potent antioxidant found in a lot of seafoods, which is, again, hard to acquire in normal diet. We have a special offer that's running now. Click the link in the show notes, use the checkout code DAD, and put Kato in your cart, and that Kato will go to you free with any purchase on hvmn.com. Back to the program. If you go from the top, I'd say from the, the uh, institution that, that had the, the most impact and kind of work your way down to all the way, I guess, Surgisphere. The World Health Organization has obviously been uh, battling with the president over hydroxychloroquine, I think, for, for quite some time. And, you know, the... Uh, president announced that they were going to defund uh, World Health Organization as well. And so there's definitely some politics involved um, at that highest level. Then you also have to look into or consider the idea of of big pharma interests. They're a very powerful group. And there's a lot of conflicts of interest, um, definitely within the U.S., but probably also internationally and with the World Health Organization as well. I mean, the, the national task force on uh, who proposes uh, recommendation treatment guidelines for COVID nineteen, uh, almost twenty percent of that of that advisory panel is either employed or invested in Gilead, which is a, a big pharmaceutical company that 
has the patent for remdesivir, which many consider a, a competitor to hydroxychloroquine. So at the, at the highest level, you have really a, a combination. There's probably significant overlap between the two of, let's say, big pharma and politics. Now, the World Health Organization, the chief scientist uh, for the WHO, uh, tweeted out, I think, two or three days ago, this is in regards to the Lancet study being retracted, that they don't have the time or resources to evaluate the data for every paper and that they just depend basically on the, the source of the information. And in this case, it was, it was Lancet, which is considered a reputable source. So here they very quickly, no, no due diligence, I would say, it was over a weekend, they changed you know, the treatment recommendations worldwide just based off the fact that a study came out of Lancet and involved a, a Harvard researcher who was well-known. That was it. So that, first of all, is kind of unbelievable. I mean, this wasn't just some random paper that was very peripherally going to affect uh, the treatment of patients. This was obviously a very uh, a large impact study. And so, you know, if you're going to evaluate a study, maybe this should have been the one. Yeah, this is like the core argument, right? This is the crux argument of making policy. And then wouldn't the World Health Organization be aware of a database that was the largest database in the world right now? <laughs> I mean, do you, like, wouldn't that be kind of surprising? Like, oh, wow, we didn't realize that there's a real-time artificial intelligence machine learning database out there that has more patient encounters than any other database in the world. Like, huh, maybe that would be helpful for this pandemic. Like, how could all this not really cross their mind? So that's very suspicious. Then when you move down to the, the Lancet, um, you have Richard Horton, who's the, the editor-in-chief of the Lancet. And he has, I think, talked uh, highly of remdesivir in the past and definitely has his uh, politics uh, that he's tweeted about uh, many times. And it was actually funny, just two days before the paper came out, Richard Horton uh, responded to someone that uh, another scientist or physician had said that the, the peer review process was essentially dead. And Richard Horton, this is May 20th, so two days before the study came out, uh, tweeted out saying it's very much alive. It's very, it's a very rigorous peer review process with, you know, 19 or whatever peer reviewers doing this full time. And how, how dare you say that? And then two days later, they published a study that gets retracted within 13 Ooh. days. Um, but so that's, so that's, a, so that's another one. So you have the editor in chief who did not think that this data or this study looked suspicious at all, even after the Australia data came back as being impossible, still didn't think it was suspicious. Just let the authors respond and then said, yeah, so I think that's, that's a little correction and the rest of it is fine. And then you go down to the next level, which is the actual authors of the study. So the lead author is, uh, Dr. Mandy Mera. And so he's very well known in, in cardiovascular journals. He actually is the editor-in-chief, I believe, of, of another well-known journal. He supposedly, in the original paper, he and uh, Dr. Amit Patel, another uh, physician who was one of the authors of the paper, had access and attested to having access to all the data and reviewed it and uh, you know, attested to, to its accuracy. And what is kind of evolving, which is what I suspected was going to happen, is all this whole scandal was going to just kind of get pinned on, on one guy, which is Sapan Desai with Surgisphere, um, mm. which is, is very interesting because, again, like I said, there, there, there's so many red flags for the World Health Organization, so many should have been red flags for the Lancet, even for the, the authors, for this Dr. Mandy Mera, who's very familiar with 
with analyzing data, uh, as he is the editor-in-chief of another journal, for him to actually do work with Sapan Desai and Amit Patel on the Surgisphere database three times. So this wasn't like his first time uh, looking at this data or analyzing it. He, they, did a, they released a preprint in, I think, mid-April on ivermectin using the same, same database. They did that New England Journal of Medicine uh, article in early May, May 1st, uh, looking at the effects of cardiovascular drugs on COVID-19. And then with the grand finale of being the, you know, the hydroxychloroquine study on COVID-19. How, after being that involved for two, two months or more, in this database, would you never have been like, maybe I could see the raw data, maybe like Sapan, like, could I look at the raw data or, you know, how do I know this is, this seems like an unrealistic database. Is it real? Just interjecting here, just knowing about the peer review journal submission process. If you're the first author or the corresponding author, you are essentially certifying that you vouch for everything in that paper. I mean, that's what you disclaim and put in, in, in the journal submission, in the paper submission. Okay. So just ridiculously negligent at very best to say, oops, I didn't look at the raw data even though I claimed I did and understand and vouch for everything in this paper. And I think what you're hinting towards, which seems to be a likely explanation, there's, was there a malicious cause or was there a personal greed that explained the motivation here? And is it fair to just put this blame on uh, Dr. Desai here who might be the, the, the fall man here. How do you make, how, how do you digest and encapsulate the different motivations here? It, was it just everyone is greedy and wanted to make a name and it, the, the data kind of, and the story kind of fit their prejudiced lens of how they wanted the hydroxychloroquine story to play out? So every single layer, let it slide. And is it is it just that, just multiple layers of negligence and just a story that fit their own narrative? What do you make of it? I mean, I think you can kind of, you know, if you just look at all the, the evidence, it just seems unlikely that it could just be negligence all the way through uh, at, at each layer. Um, because remember, this was caught by independent researchers uh, like myself in the matter of days. So one thing would be if this required some, you know, maybe government investigation or something much, you know, much bigger centralized operation or something to figure out that this study had fraudulent data or if it was more in the gray area. But the fact that we, who had arguably significantly less access to data, we no way are able to see what Dr. Mera is, you know, purporting that he was able to see, to be able to determine that this study was false, you know, it seems unlikely to me. I think that there was something greater going on. And then even if you, you know, look at the, the first interview, Francois, um, a French magazine interviewed Dr. Mera, I think the day the study came out actually. And so this was uh, when they're riding high, they published this, this incredible study. Um, and he said, and he was speaking kind of on behalf of himself, that he started, that he, they started collecting data in real time as early as December on hydroxychloroquine as a treatment for this. So not really retrospectively, but actually prospectively um, observing it, which is, you know, he didn't say Surgisphere started this or whether he was kind of using the, the we, I don't know whether he's talking about himself or maybe just referring to Surgisphere, but he was definitely very much uh, embracing his role within, within this study. Um, 
I don't know. I think I think there is more to it. We probably will will ne- we might never know. Some people are definitely calling for a, a much more formal investigation into this scandal as opposed to just a journalistic investigation. That might turn up some more details. I, you know, the uh, it was funny this past week watching the Surgisphere website and the LinkedIn and everything change in almost real time. So something would come out on Twitter and then the website would change accordingly. So it was like, oh, lawyers are looking into these declared partnerships with, with Harvard and University of Minnesota. And the next day, that was removed from the website. And then you had the, uh, the just as recently as today, they deleted their, their Twitter account and they eliminated their, their, web, their website now just consists of a home and about us. So it's really trimmed down. And, and if you actually, it's, it's very interesting. If you go through the tweets of a lot of these, you know, the, the authors as well as some of the big personalities that jumped on announcing this study, you know, they're all deleted now. And it's just the information is disappearing so quickly that, you know, we may never know. I don't know. Yeah. One doesn't need to suppose that a potential crime has happened here. But I think in terms of actual the integrity of, of the academia, of their roles as professors and or editors, editors of academic journals with high impact factor, there has to be a, a, a formal investigation to just understand how these people have operated and, and really bring to doubt their previous work. I think it's one of those cases where, okay, there has been a misstep of integrity negligence at the very, very best. And we need to just understand how deep does that negligence go again at the very, very best, if not just more sinister activities that has gone over the years. Yeah. I think that, so, you know, this, so hydroxychloroquine has obviously been a a huge controversy. And so that was the only reason this study got so much attention and independent investigation is because it challenged what so many people had been saying for, for so long. Imagine all the studies that don't have that, all the, the big pharma studies that are published that don't really attract that interest. And then physicians just kind of accept it as fact and independent researchers aren't really that motivated to dig through the data or find out if it's fake or not. Yet the, those studies also make huge differences on, on treatment of, of patients and what drugs you use. And, you know, this definitely calls into question, I mean, how, how valid or accurate are those studies? Um, you know, it's interesting because Richard Horton, I think this was about 15 years ago. Um, this is still while he was editor in chief of the Lancet. He actually himself, uh, said that, you know, something to the effect of, uh, you know, journals are almost like marketing machines for big pharma now. They're almost owned by big pharma. And that's partially true. That's where they, that's where they kind of attract a lot of their attention and funding and their papers and stuff. And so I would say that the process is, is, uh, you know, from what I've seen, it seems like it's been corrupted. Yeah. And I think this draws closer to a lot of the topics that we've discussed previously on the H4Men podcast around how a lot of studies around diet, how a lot of studies around food, nutrition, this, the stories around insulin resistance, LDL, heart disease, where there's a lot of special interests that are either from pharma or previous dogma that seems to be conflated within institutional science. And I think, you know, one doesn't need to say, hey, there's a massive conspiracy here. But I think it is fair to say that I think and, and I think we already see this in other fields, that there is increasing doubt around our institutions. I think you see this with journalism. You see a lot of doubt on 
the individual reporters and what kind of quality of work that they do. And it's not to say all journalists or New York Times or anything is bad, right? It looks like the Guardian in this specific case and the reporting team there did a great job exposing and and, and, and educating folks on an important topic here. I, I see a parallel analog with, for example, folks that are essentially rehabilitating the ketogenic diet or folks questioning what is the standard of care for diabetes. Do we, does injecting more insulin make sense if you can restrict carbohydrate? I don't want to make a, you know, make turn, you know, put, go down that rabbit hole, but it seems like in this case, there's this doubt around what is a role today, given that information access is broader than ever? I think you can make the argument that the academia, the, the, the academy, 300, 400 years ago, there was just not a lot of access to printed paper. There was a very select few class of people that had, could have the leisure time to read and ponder science and new ideas. And maybe it was fine for the academy to educate and tell people exactly what how, how the world works. It just feels like today there's just a decentralization of information and folks like yourself, you're an independent researcher, you have the formal medical training, but are not necessarily practicing in academy, but you are presenting arguments just as if not sharper and more articulate than the quote unquote professional institutionalized researcher with the same degree that you have. It feels like this is happening across so many different fields today. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's becoming more and more kind of do your own research as opposed to just trusting some centralized institutions. And I think that uh, kind of like what you're saying, the, the information is so available and the information flow is there. Um, and you can now quickly see and interact with um, other people's opinions who maybe are not the qualified or not the, you know, the you know, traditionally qualified people that are speaking on the subject. Like, um, you know, before I'd say social media and you know, the way people are able to interact so easily over the internet, you just had a few of those, those scientists, a few specialized physicians, and they all kind of, a lot of them know each other who are talking intelligently about this, the subject matter. And that's that. But now you have people who are like myself, and I have a whole network of physicians who have their thoughts on hydroxychloroquine and this, and they're not even, they're not, uh, you know, infectious disease experts. Um, they're a, a whole, they're not, you know, a lot of them aren't in academics. But they, they have opinions on it. They have very smart opinions on it. Um, and kind of the ability to collect in a, a decentralized way all this kind of uh, you know, intelligence, intel, and the subject, I think, is very powerful. And I think that's why it was possible to actually debunk the study in 13 days. I mean, that is, that's probably a record for a study of, of this magnitude to be able to, you know, from, from publication to retraction <laughs> in less than two weeks. I mean... Uh, it's, it's unbelievable the way that information was all able to be. So some people were looking at the data side of things. Someone was looking at Surgisphere. And then you had that whole track record on the, and, and then you had the suspicion, kind of like what you're saying, of institutions. You know, does the Lancet, are they, are, they're anti-hydroxychloroquine generally before the study even came out. Are they suspect? What about the World Health Organization? They jumped on this really quickly. Is that suspect? I don't want to go down the conspiracy theory too much. I mean, I, I majored in chemistry in college. I'm a physician. So I'm all about kind of evidence that's available. But, it, you know, but there's a reason people got together and looked into this study and is because it, um, you know, they were very suspicious about the, uh, the institutions and, and what the narrative was they wanted to spin. And those suspicions were correct. This story here was just the triumph of science. The academia, the academics, or the institutions were essentially playing by appeal to authority. It's like, okay, I got the Harvard 
a researcher. I got the Lancet. I got the WHO. These are the stamps. Let's not think too hard. Boom. Policy decided. And it's actually scientists and researchers like yourself actually sticking to the principles of science, not necessarily looking at what your institution is or what your degree is, but actually looking at the raw data exactly. and saying, hey, um, can you be skeptical here? And I think that's hopefully you know one of the things that I've want to do with our program here, which is in, empower yourself, learn so you can actually be armed in this increasingly information <laughs> confusing world that we have. And what are the truths? What are the principles of science? It's not listening to someone with a degree or institution. It's actually looking at the data yourself and getting the right tools to be able to analyze the data. Um, so I'm curious to hear your thoughts just stepping back as you're synthesizing all this data, where do you now stand on hydroxychloroquine? Um, it sounds like, you know, you seem, you know, in the beginning part of this conversation, I think you're open to the fact that it was not necessarily proved out one way or the other. What flagged you onto this Lancet story was that it seemed very, very negative to the data you've seen. Where do you sit today? In early June, yeah. So I think there's a lot of confusion um, on both sides out there on hydroxychloroquine, and it really, I think, comes down to the indications for it. Um, it seems like people either say, uh, you know, hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, which is what the Lancet study, even even though that was just looking at hospitalized patients, we now know it's false. Um, and then even the Oxford study that just came out that. Uh, showed that it had uh, no effect on sick hospitalized patients. Again, my followers and a lot of the people who actually conducted the research initially on this, uh, on hydroxychloroquine, almost never said this works in hospitalized patients. You really have to divide the, if you look at it from prophylactic to late stage treatment, there's you know, before you get infected with the virus, there's, that's called prophylactic. It may or may not work there. There's early treatment, which means you've uh, been symptomatic for the disease for maybe two or three days. And so starting treatment with it in that time frame. And then there's something later stage where you're hospitalized, you're about to go on a ventilator. And so that's really the, that, that last category is really where most of the research on hydroxychloroquine has been done. That's been the World Health Organization's focus. That was the study out of New York. That was their focus. And it's, it's really sad because to me, it's a waste of time. I, I said it was a waste of time two months ago because it's not going to show any effect that late in the game. So really the focus should be on either as a prophylactic or an early treatment of COVID-19. And unfortunately, that's where a lot of the data is very limited. So regarding uh, early treatment, really the, the best data we have still is from uh, Dr. Raoul in the south of France, who's treated over 3,000 patients with it hospitalized, but uh, very early treatment before they, the patients went downhill. And he has a very low mortality rate, I think something about 0.5% or less. And then Dr. Zelenko in New York, who's treated uh, over 500 patients now with it. This is observational data. This is not a randomized controlled trial, so it's not the gold standard. But I'd say that's still the best evidence we have right now on uh, hydroxychloroquine in early treatment of COVID-19. Regarding prophylactic um, treatment, uh, prophylaxis of COVID-19, there was the Minnesota study that just came out last week. I think a lot of people uh, immediately, you know, kind of they, they, they jump for buzzwords, even very smart people. Uh, but the, you know, it's a randomized, it's called a randomized controlled trial and it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it was both that randomized controlled trial, which is a great 
a great you know buzzword. Um, we got to look at what actually that means in the trial. And then it's published by New England Journal of Medicine. So a lot of people said, oh, that's strong data. And so what that study showed was that there was really no benefit to taking hydroxychloroquine uh, in prophylaxis to prevent you from getting COVID-19. But that study had a lot of limitations, which is it may not be the author's fault. It was a very low-funded study, which is also interesting of itself, is why can they get any NIH or, or you know World Health Organization funding for this study? Um because they're they're focusing, you know, those organizations are focusing on and giving money to either big pharma or to studies that don't make any sense. Um, but it was an online survey essentially. You would say whether you 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 know send out go online and say if you got exposed to the virus, and then they would mail you medication. It would be a placebo versus a the actual uh, hydroxychloroquine. But it's pretty easy to tell apart by the size and shape of the pill which one you're taking. And there's really no patient physician exam. So, you know, it, it was really an online survey almost at the end of the day. And so I wouldn't really call that strong data, that it is some data um, against it being a, a magic bullet or, um, for preventing COVID-19. But I think that, that ultimately also kind of brings out is, you know, in medicine, there's very few things that are a, um, an absolute, right? So there's, it's really more about reducing your chances, uh, you know, benefit over harm. And so I think that's where hydroxychloroquine stands. I think it there's a good chance that it helps prevent you from becoming infected. If you still get a large, um, you know, viral uh, dose initially, it may overcome the prophylaxis. Um, and then early treatment, I think it can maybe reduce your 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 symptoms or your stay in the hospital, and maybe has a mortality benefit as well. Um, but I think we're now seeing that it, it clearly is not actually harmful as the mainstream media was, I guess, kind of that was what they were pushing for so long. Yeah. Let's continue to see how the evidence unfolds. I mean, are there devil's advocates who are saying, hey, you know, how is James going to be making money or getting personal gain from hydroxychloroquine being rehabilitated here? Is there something there? Or is it just like you think that COVID is a problem and you looked at the literature of existing potential therapeutics hydroxychloroquine came had a mechanism that you thought was promising and you want to see the work done since i think we're playing to doubt other people's personal motives you know if people put that lens on you is there do you say hey like i don't have any conflicts that i know of happy to take your criticism yeah so a few people have asked that it seemed like they were asking that more so early on um and they haven't really been asking anymore but you know, which comes like kind of the big problem with hydroxychloroquine is you know, it's really hard to make money off it. <laughs> like even uh, Sanofi, who is a manufacturer of Plaquenil, so that's the brand name version of hydroxychloroquine, they kind of just abandoned their, their recent study on it. And, you know, they didn't really have a, a real good reason for abandoning the study. Um, but I suspect it's, you know, it's, it's really hard. Like if they do find it to be effective, there's 12 different manufacturers of the drug in the U.S. alone. And so they'll all just... It's off patent, right? It's off patent. It's a 65-year-old medication. It's dirt cheap, um, widely available. And so, you know, any of these uh, pharmaceutical companies that put in the, the time and effort to study this drug and the resources, they're not going to get that money back. They're, you know, maybe everyone, all the pharmacies will benefit slightly in some way by selling more of the of hydroxychloroquine. But it's... You know, and, and it was funny, like when, when President Trump uh, was talking about it, they started looking at his, uh, I think, investments in Sanofi and stuff. And they're like, oh, he's just looking to prosper. I think that uh, even fact checkers, you know, one of the 
one of the pop they said well i mean he's, he's only looking to gain like a hundred dollars or something off this <laughs> like it just it's very you it's very difficult to make money off this um and so that's why i think so many people and i think that's why hydroxychloroquine got so many so much grassroots support is because people knew that the the people that are supporting it i think are a little bit more pure than the people who are supporting and advocating, say, remdesivir. Remdesivir, I mean, Gilead stock really rises and falls, or was for a while, based on the, you know, each of the kind of leaked outcomes in the in studies of it in COVID-19. And actually, when hydroxychloroquine started to get some attention and traction, I think Gilead stock even dropped a little bit, which is uh, which results in the you know loss of millions and millions of dollars for investors. And so. Um, yeah, so overall, I'd say that there's a lot more trust in people that are uh, talking about hydroxychloroquine over over any of the patented regimens because it, again, it's it's very hard to make money off it, and I, I don't I don't see myself making money off. No, I think that's helpful. I think it's again, I think as we realize that people have potential conflicts, I think let's get out ahead of it. I think you're exactly right. This is an interesting intervention, and and. And I I, I think we've just seen it. We just understand. Like I don't know if I blame capitalism or incentive structures for why people would rather put money into R&D and doing RCTs, which are very, very expensive, on patented molecules. I get it from a, from an incentives perspective. It's very, very hard to say, hey, let's dump $100, $200 million into an off-patent commodity that everyone else will make money off of. I think that's where is an interesting policy question around how does science get funded because a lot of the profit motive is in therapeutics that are patentable. Are we skewing the focus in a way we don't like? Where does public goods come from? Where does government step in? Or, you know, and I think that's kind of the policy discussion above my pay grade, but I think that is kind of the strolling context that is, I think having all these second, third, fourth order effects that are driving people locally. I don't think any individual researcher at Gilead is trying to say, hey, I'm going to like make money and screw the rest of the world on something that's equally or potentially just as good, but like 10 times cheaper. Um, but I think you stack all the systems together and it seems to have some disaligned incentive structures for what should theoretically be a public good versus private uh, profit motive. This probably is a good point to start wrapping up the conversation here. I know that you have Medicine Uncensored as your platform where you publish a lot of your early thoughts, tastemaking, and, and drawing attention to this area. Is there other things that you're looking at doing more independent research on? Uh, I know this is kind of like your day hobby and you, and you, and you manage uh, investments as your actual profession but you know how do you spend your time how are you how are you allocating your, your brain power right now yeah so um a lot of it has been on, on COVID 19 just because time is of the essence for it um and you know i do balance that time though with investments so i i do uh, manage a uh, a blockchain cryptocurrency fund and i do continue to do active research in cryptocurrency blockchain investments, um, as that's where a, a lot of my portfolio is right now, um, which is, I think kind of goes along a, a little bit of the same theme where it's a little bit of, a, I'd say almost distrust of centralized institutions again. So just like there was distrust of the Lancet, there's a lot of distrust for banks um, and the ability to have um, kind of uncensored thoughts in medicine 
you know, you can, that, that kind of is easily transferable to uncensored money, which is like, like Bitcoin, where, you know, someone can't stop you from really transacting in Bitcoin. They cannot freeze your accounts. It's, it's really money that you have control over. And I think that um, that's powerful with kind of medical information, uh, data, as well as, as money. And so uh, that's, it's kind of a, from, I guess, a, a theme, all this kind of goes into like one big picture, which is kind of uncensored, uh, which is kind of my continual focus. And I think that, you know, on an even higher level, um, I think censorship is going to be a, a big, a huge uh, focus over the next few years. And I think we're just starting to see the beginning of it because so much of intelligent discussion now happens on social media platforms. It's, it's, you know, it's no longer, uh, you know, Twitter is no longer just, you know, putting up your, your breakfast or something. It's, it's very in, highly intelligent discussions. If you look at, at Bitcoin or crypto, all the intelligent discussions that are, that happen publicly are on Twitter. If you look at, at medicine, that's how we kind of came together to debunk this whole study was on Twitter. And so once you can begin censoring what people can say and sitting there and then flagging anything that goes against the World Health Organization or the Lancet, you're going to suppress any of those those criticisms that are probably true. Like this, you know, this surgery scandal went from uh, some people were calling it a conspiracy theory to a fact in the matter of days. And so, you know, I think it's super important to these these social platforms remain free uh, for open dialogue and discussion um, on the, on these subjects. And I really hope that's the case, but I think this is going to be a big kind of battle or war over the next couple of years. I can't agree with you more on that point. And I think that's also part of the reason why podcasts, long form conversations, at least we've seen the uplift in traffic and attention and engagement on conversations like these, right? Like even the guardian article, which I think was really nicely done it quoted you for like a couple sentences and great move. Maybe the next news cycle hits, but I think our listeners and I think folks who might've read that guardian article would love to hear an hour discussion into your motivations, your insights, how you even came to this point and how it all unfolded and some of the more speculative future areas to look at, which is less understood, but potentially require more attention. And I think, exactly to the nose I, I think this to me is like the almost the most american concept of speech of a meritocracy of ideas not bound by your title or your background or your resume but truly a pure meritocracy of ideas and i think that's what we all should be fighting for absolutely uh and and, and preserving um that's the only way you can actually get things right to, to the end of the day to be effective absolutely couldn't agree more well, we'll leave it there. Where do people follow you? Where do people uh, tune in to your next insights? So uh, Twitter is where I put a lot of my thoughts. Uh, I usually tweet every day. Uh, it's James Tadaro. My last name is spelled T-O-D-A-R-O and then M-D, medical doctor. So James Tadaro, M-D. Follow me there. My direct messages are open. If you want to reach out to me, do so. I encourage you to do so. And then I also have medicineuncensored.com, which is where I... I put out a lot of the kind of content, the, I guess I'd say real news on COVID-19 and hydroxychloroquine. Awesome. Thanks so much, James. All right. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the HVMN podcast. If you're interested to learn more about HVMN and our offerings, visit hvmn.com slash pod. 
please remember to subscribe. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please give this video a like. And remember to hit that bell to get notified whenever we post. We also have a dedicated Discord server, which you can join by first taking a short survey, and then I'll personally send you an invite to join the community there. The link to that survey will be in the description, along with any other relevant links. And we'll see you all next week.